Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Our conversation today will highlight some sustainability and ESG trends within the fixed income space, along with thoughts on recent performance, an outlook for rates, and how to be positioned within the asset class. Uh, joining me for the conversation today, uh, glad to welcome back to Top of the Morning, uh, both Leslie Falconio, Senior Fixed Income Strategist Americas, as well as Barry Mac- Linden, Senior Credit Strategist Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So, Leslie, Barry, it's great to be with you as always. Welcome back and looking forward to our conversation today. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Dan. So, to start things off, uh, as we all know, sustainability, ESG, uh, they have been gaining much momentum across the investor community. I know within the most recent fixed income strategist, Barry, you actually write about some trends specific to the fixed income space that you've been picking up on that stand out to you at the moment. So, what can you share with us to get things started? One thing we notice is just how widespread sustainability is being considered within fixed income among the key stakeholders, whether it be the issuers themselves, uh, investors, uh, and also the rating agencies. So I think many fixed-income investors might not realize that the, the main rating agencies are taking ESG into consideration when um, determining company credit ratings. And um, Moody cited, for example, that these considerations um, were taken about 85% of the time in actions that were taken last year. Uh, in terms of their their credit rating. So so these are something that the key stakeholders are paying close attention to. And certainly from an investor point of view, we know that considering the environmental, social, and governance uh, factors uh, is something that's you know, been talked about considerably in, in the equity world. It's also being done in the fixed income sector as well. And here, as it relates to fixed income, you know, I think it's an important point where to the extent that any um, potential risk factors are flagged, you know, this is pretty significant in that, you know, if you're able to flag certain risk factors stemming from ESG considerations, and here oftentimes governance stands out um, as being, you know, really a a main important factor in terms of risk mitigation. I mean, that's a real um, primary goal for fixed income investors to preserve capital. So I think, you know, as these ESG considerations continue to be utilized, um, it'll be important in mitigating risk, you know, for fixed income investors. So again, just, just how much it's gained momentum, not just from bonds that are labeled, uh, green, social, and sustainable, but how sustainable approaches are being utilized by investors and also the rating agencies. So Barry, as a follow-up, you just mentioned green social sustainability. You refer to it as GSS, the bond universe. Can you walk us through the current scope of the GSS bond universe as well as its growth and demand prospects? So these are bonds where the use of proceeds are specifically designed for either green, social, or a combination, which is the sustainability uh, type of bond. Now, there is a fourth, which is sustainability linked that's gaining traction. And those are are also have proceeds that are linked to specific uh, sustainable targets by companies. And in fixed income, I think these these are the instruments themselves with specific use of proceeds. So sometimes they're referred to as labeled bonds. And this universe continues to grow um, substantially. So uh, the total size um, has reached about 1.8 trillion on a global basis. Uh, and it's rapidly growing, you know, in all regions, um, in Europe, U.S., 
uh, even this emerging market in Asia. Um, and because it's a global market, you do have to take into account differences in certainly, you know, global uh, interest rates uh, as well as foreign currencies. Uh, so when you think about, uh, you know, the, the broad universe of um, green social sustainability bonds, I mean, there is a, a portion of that universe uh, if they're issued by um, sovereigns or um, like multilateral development bank, you know, government-like entities where, as we know, yields overseas um, are, are negative. So you have a portion of this market, too, uh, that have that negative um, yield uh, characteristic. Um, so, you know, in, in that regard, um, it's more advantageous for U.S. dollar investors to, to move down more into the credit scope of these types of bond issues. And in doing so, you have to keep in mind that, you know, credit analysis does play a role because these bonds you know, have the same ranking as regular bonds that these, um, these issuers had outstanding. And other factors such as duration, you know, the sensitivity to interest rates does also play uh, a role just like it would a regular bond. Now, you can look at the performance of, um, let's say, green bonds, um, which have been around for a bit longer than their now their, their social uh, counterparts. But green bond indices historically have performed pretty well. It, it, it's mostly during the, the periods of market volatility where, where they just don't draw down quite as much. And that may have to do with uh, the fact that the investor base is a little bit more sticky, maybe not so inclined to sell positions. Um, also, sector compositions are a bit more defensive with more of a utility type uh, weighting in those. But if you strip out the effects of the high duration or the differences in sector, we do think, you know, comparing bonds that are either green, social, or sustainable to a regular bond index, um, that you will perform at least in line with the regular bond index with the potential to, to outperform. I think that outperformance would come more on a risk-adjusted basis, again, because of that kind of dampened volatility phenomenon. Um, but I think that's the real appeal for investors is that you can perform in line or better, um, but still be looking at instruments, um, you know, bond securities that have, you know, proceeds that are, are having a, more of, a, of an impact in the sustainable space. From the vantage point of a manager, what are some observations when it comes to the selection process, integration? What are some qualities that managers are looking for? One thing from the manager point of view, I think they're certainly looking for if, if something gets flagged as a risk, there, it's, it's expected that the issuers who are maybe lagging, you know, regarding the transparency, um, put some sort of remedy in place. So that, that engagement is also being, um, utilized in the, in the fixed income world as well, as we hear about, um, in, in the equity investing world. Um, and I think, you know, the, the willingness and ability of issuers to put frameworks in place um, to contribute to these sustainability goals um, is something that managers are, are looking for. And in that regard, I think you know managers might be comfortable with a certain bond issuer, not just because they're issuing, again, a labeled bond with specific green, social, or sustainable use of proceeds, but also because they might be a quote-unquote ESG leader. You know, they're, they're ESG scores that are determined either proprietary or through a third-party you know, ESG risk score provider, um, you know, that, that's another method that fixed-income managers are taking to, to consideration. And we kind of thought, well, if, if you have you know, a group of issuers, and, and here more specifically to corporations, 
where they do screen well in terms of their ESG risk scores. Many of these companies are the same that are in the marketplace, you know, issuing specifically labeled green or, or social bonds. Um, from from the investor point of view, you know, we would recommend even for individual investors that maybe you don't necessarily have to look at the specifically labeled bond of these companies. You might want to just take into account the, the issuer's regular bond because, you know, now we're, we're seeing that, that the issuer, you know, does um, meet certain ESG thresholds. You know, they, if they're deemed to be, um, you know, within a certain leader type parameter, then, um, you know, you have more availability to choose bonds that may match your individual maturity points um, that, they, that meet individual investors' goals. So that was just another observation is that there's a lot of overlap between those companies that are issuing label bonds and also the ones that do screen well just from an overall ESG score perspective. Well, Barry, thank you for highlighting for us some sustainability and ESG trends within the fixed income space, as well as offering up some guidance when it comes to investment selection and consideration. I do encourage our listeners, our clients to read further into Barry's lead article within the most recent fixed income strategist to learn more. I do want to pivot over to Leslie Falcone for some performance trends within the fixed income space. Leslie, what have you picked up on since we last spoke back in August? And what's your near-term performance outlook and any color on rates as well, what your outlook is there? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, Dan. I mean, since we last spoke and actually since the first week of August, we've had this very tight range in in 10-year treasury, um, maybe about 10 to 15 basis points. And since the Jackson Hole Symposium, we've had volatility collapse. So a lot of the um, underperformance of that reflation allocation that we saw during the summer has come back. And now, again, we're sort of faced with these levels that volatility is very low, Spreads are, spreads are not as not as all-time tight this year, but they're very tight. And the opportunity set within fixed income is not vast. So when we think about how, we, how we're positioned or what we think about in terms of rates at the end of the year, one thing that we have with confidence is that volatility is going to go up. And whether it is a taper, even though the market is expecting it, we have things with the deficit, the debt ceiling, and obviously uh, the, the potential impacts of the Delta variant all have, in our opinion, have volatility probably rising into the end of the year. So this tight range in 10-year yields that we've seen um, will probably break out. And again, as, as those of us who follow our outlook, we do expect the, the treasury yield sort of to rise into year end. And there, there's a couple things because of that or why we feel that way. First off, as we've discussed so many times, you know, when we look at the, how negative real yields are, you know, and, and particularly how it relates to the tips market, and I'll get into today's CPI in a second, but they're very, very negative and tips are very rich. And when you have these negative real yields, normally growth outlook is not strong when, when real yields are negative. And we've seen this adjustment in the prospects for future growth, whether it's a, you know, elongated supply chain issue or, you know, the Delta variant coming in play. So, and so the market is really pricing in a lot of slower growth, which has led to very negative real yields and also very low nominal yields. Because of that, it's already pricing these in to, in our opinion, a little bit stretched. You know, when we have numbers such as the non-farm payroll that go below expectations, you don't see 10-year yields decline. And you don't see 10-year yields decline because the market is already pressing in such a lower prospect for future growth. You see yields rise. And the reason why yields are rising is that when you have this below consensus number, what it does is that sort of it puts the Fed in terms of taking a step back 
in terms of potential tightening, which allows the economy to grow faster and longer for, for a longer period of time. So that pushes yields up. The CPI today is is another story. I mean, we're kind of flat on the day. We initially yields rose higher, but this is the second month the CPI had come in below expectation, and it really sort of plays into the uh, the Fed rhetoric that it is actually transitory. So we have this below inflation miss, and it's not that we have these yields declining tremendously because we have this below number. It's the opposite. That's actually would be push rates higher because, again, it puts the Fed a little bit more on hold. So, you know, what we think in terms of the end of the year is that we do believe that jobs numbers will come back. We do believe that, you know, although there are certain restrictions in terms of mass, I mean, kids are back at school, employment subsidies end, we will have some sort of fiscal stimulus. So we think yields rise into the end of the year, probably at a minimum to that March high that we saw in, uh, that we saw this year at about 175, 177 level. So Leslie, with that outlook in mind, with respect to allocation preferences within fixed income, what's your current thinking there? Yeah, again, I mean, I wish this was a, a you know, we welcome the volatility coming into the fall because it's opportunistic. And, you know, as we've seen, you know, we've really had spreads have come in because of all this fiscal and monetary accommodation. You've had, we had a short-term blip in the uh, summer as, you know, yields declined very quickly and there were certain technical aspects that pushed, you know, uh, uh, rates, uh, excuse me, spreads a little bit wider. But again, it was very short-lived. And now we're at a situation where when we look at the opportunity set within fixed income, it's not one that's wide. And you really need to take a look at the driver's return, and you have to take a look at carry versus capital preservation. And because we believe that interest rates will rise, we still, and, and, you know, the economy is strong and the fundamentals within credit are very good. You know, we still, we still, you know, allocate towards asset classes such as senior loans, which are floating rate. It's one of the few asset classes that has a positive real yield. The fundamentals are very strong and you are getting rid of one of those risks, which are interest rate risk. The second one still is on the commercial real estate side and CNBS side. One is that we think commercial real estate as a whole will do well. And secondly, for those that are concerned about inflation, um, you know, being an issue for a little bit longer than what we're expecting, the CNBS side is a good way to hedge against that inflation as well with, with taking a little bit more interest rate risk on, which could help you if, in fact, we do get a correction in the equity market. So these positions or this barbell that we've had, we've had it on for the past several months, but it's, it's really because that is... Um, we, the way we believe the market has been trending, the pro-cyclical reflation we still think is where you want to be, even though the amount, the momentum in terms of gaining total return are less because we've seen a large recovery, we still think that it has room to go. Well, Leslie, thank you for walking us through your rate outlook, providing thoughts, observations on the current environment and how to position accordingly within the asset class. And Barry, it was nice catching up with you earlier with respect to sustainability ESG trends within fixed income that you've been picking up on. Always appreciate the insights. Leslie, Barry, thank you for joining our listeners, our clients, and we'll We'll look forward to picking back up with the conversation again soon. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. Today, we've been joined by both Leslie Falconio, Senior Fixed Income Strategist Americas, as well as Barry McAlinden, Senior Credit Strategist Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. As a reminder to our clients and our listeners, the UBS Chief Investment Office does author a variety of publications and blogs that touch on timely market developments, asset classes, and portfolio allocation. Uh, these resources can all be located on UBS 
www.cbs.com forward slash CIO, including the publication which we've been making reference to during our conversation today, the Fixed Income Strategist publication, Sustainability in Fixed Income, Beyond the Label. So for clients of UBS, you can contact your financial advisor if you would like to learn more about today's topic or receive a copy of the publication directly. Top of the Morning is part of the UBS Market Moves podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO dash disclaimer.